I've never not been able to get through a reading before. One woman put me in a well-executed. And in retrospect... I mean, <laughs> I'm going to start I'm enjoying again. you laughing, but I'll take care of you all. Sorry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. Me, Joe Hamia. And we start today with a moment of raw emotion. I don't want to, like, get all dramatic, writing saved my life or anything like that, but um, writing's given me a life. And I had all these things. Can I talk about the book for one second, I guess? <laughs> and, uh... Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, this, I wasn't expecting this, I have to say. Give me a second, sorry. That was Paul Beatty receiving the 2016 Booker Prize for his novel The Sellout, the first American to win the Booker Prize uh, after the rules were changed in 2014. Because before that, it had been a prize open to Britain, the Commonwealth and the, and the Republic of Ireland. Joe, do you want to say a bit about Maybe that change and also a bit about a bit a bit about him and before we turn to the book itself. So what is typically referred to in Booker history as the American question or letting the Americans in is a bit of a misnomer because in fact the rule change that happened in 2014, it's true that the Board of Booker Trustees were considering setting up an alternate prize for American fiction, but ultimately felt that um they risked watering down what's called the main prize, the one that happens towards the end of the year, gets announced around November. And so they decided to integrate novels from any nationality that had essentially been written in English and published in the UK. And from my sense of it, this didn't really start to be an issue until Americans started getting shortlisted. I'm not quite sure why Americans are the sore point. You know, there's that whole special relationship malarkey that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> got bandied round in the early 2010s. It didn't seem to take with the book world. In 2018, a group of publishers in the UK put together this draft letter. Their argument was that letting Americans in, but I take it that this applied globally as well. Letting other nationalities into the prize watered down the integrity of the prize itself because there are so few uh, English or indeed British prizes which focus exclusively on our national literature and that this was a really, uh, the prize used to be a really rare opportunity to showcase kind of the best of British, if not the best of the Commonwealth. Another argument was that um, having a prize for Commonwealth writers, and this depends how you feel about Queen Elizabeth, or late Queen Elizabeth, uh, allowed um, novels from the Commonwealth to sort of speak to each other um, through the medium of a long list or a short list. There are many Booker authors, I think, the ones who have been vocal include Julian Barnes. And I think I read in the New York Times that at one point Sadie Smith as well, which I find quite surprising. I think probably she's changed her mind by now, were fairly against broadening the prize. But the argument for that Booker made was that essentially we now live in a globalised world and it's very narrow-minded and short-sighted to exclusively focus on our little island or the Commonwealth, that in fact that could be seen as a form of colonialism and backwards thinking to only want to keep the prize for us, a kind of cultural conservatism, I guess. I I don't know where I, I stand on that, to be honest. I mean, p- there's also a theory, slightly salacious, that um, 
Booker broadened out the parameters for who got to be considered for the prize in response to the Rathbone's Folio Prize being set up. Rathbone's Folio was set up as uh, in response to a perceived lack of a sort of global yeah, prize well, that, 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 was my, that was my memory. I was sort of vague, vaguely in, involved in that. So the first, there was a, a year where a couple of Booker judges um, said, you know, we like a rattling good yarn, thereby <laughs> causing smoke to emerge from the ears of the more high-minded critics of London. They said, yeah, that's not the Booker Prize is at all. It should be for absolutely, you know, literary excellence. Mm. And so we're going to set up one that does it properly and call it the Folio Prize. So how are we going to be different from the book? Oh, yeah, we're going to open it to Americans as well. Yeah. Um, which was, and the year they set it up, uh, Julian Barnes won the book with the sense of an ending. So, so the whole, I thought the Folio Prize was responding to sort of nothing really. And then I, th- in my reading of it, Booker slightly panicked and then said, okay, well, we're going to do American. I don't think it could be a coincidence it was the year after the Folio that Booker suddenly went American. Yeah. I don't think it's just me being Little England. There's a, it's partly there's plenty of American prizes, but the Washington Post's main literary critic, uh, Ron Charles, I think he's called, wrote an article headline, Dear Britain, Please Take Your Booker Prize Home. And I think his argument was, uh, you know, we've got plenty of American prizes. You've got something completely unique and distinctive. You know, don't just hold on to it. I mean, I think, again, from memory at the time, part of it was a fear, a belief that basically Americans wrote better books than us and they'd always win. <laughs> And that, and and the year before it was introduced, I think the winner had been Eleanor Caton for the Luminaries, and the idea was, would, would a sort of twenty-something New Zealander ever stand a chance again? Yeah. Once, once America came flooding in, and in fact, the the, the the results haven't been as apocalyptic as people thought. But let's let's go to where we <laughs> to, to, to so, right, so let's redo all of that do, being said. Yes, we should do the actual subject of our uh, podcast today. Well, Paul uh, Paul Beatty, uh, the sellout, the first ever American winner, uh, twenty sixteen. Uh, a uh, black American winner as well. Uh, yes. Would you want to say something about him, Joe? Beatty was born in Los Angeles in 62. Amazingly, I didn't know this before I picked up the sellout, but he has a graduate degree in psychology from Boston University. And he's also got an MFA um, in creative writing from Brooklyn College, where he was also taught by Allen Ginsberg. Amazing, yeah. Can you imagine? Mm. <laughs> It's very interesting on Ginsburg if anybody wants to look up interviews. Yeah, I know, but I just feel like, can you imagine? Essentially, he, he seems to think Ginsburg was A, fantastic and influential, and B, an asshole. Yeah, that sounds about right. Mm. But I'd, I'd be terrified to write anything if Alan Ginsburg was staring <laughs> at my yeah. sheets of paper. Before that, he was a poet, and he was part of a Neorican poets. Um, who were a tradition of poets, writers, artists, and musicians whose work spoke to the social, political, and economic issues. Um, Puerto Ricans faced in New York City in the 60s and 70s. There's now a cafe, I think in Harlem or in Lower East Side, New York, sort of dedicated to them. And uh, I think post-70s Beatty would do sort of spoken word and slam poetry there, which he eventually gave up because he said uh, at the point where MTV began invading the cafe to film their slam poetry sessions, he started to get embarrassed and he hated the way the word integrity was being bandied about. Well, this is this, we'll come on to this and, and the influence on his book. He also, I think he gave up poetry because he realised he was starting to give people what they liked. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is uh, it it against up, really. everything he stands for, as we will see in a minute. So The Sellout is his fourth novel. Um, and in order, they go White Boy Shuffle, Tough, in 2000. Then he edited an anthology of African-American humour called Hokum, uh, which apparently no one found funny, <laughs> which is just, so, again, so much the vibe of The Sellout. And then Slumberland in 2008, before moving on to the sellout. I was going to say, the other controversy about the book, apart from the fact that Blimey and Americans won, uh, might be actually the book itself, because it is quite sort of unsparing. I mean, even after 
eight years or so or seven years, it, it, it already we do wonder if it's could you write that now kind of a book. But anyway, yeah, I uh, think you could. Good. Well, I sort of, sort of hope so. But anyway, so the first, so the first sentence sets the scene, I think, which is, "This may be hard to believe coming from a black man, but I've never stolen anything." Um, so it's sort of funny, sort of provocative, self-deprecating, angry, defiant challenge to the liberal reader, possibly challenge to black people. So basically, we're, it's already clear that we're not in for a straightforward tale of, you know, black good, white bad, or, or whatever. In fact, not a straightforward tale of anything. Uh, which, for my money, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table straight away, is, is what makes this book so great. But what you make of that sentence might indicate what you make of the book. So the, the prologue, um, which starts it, as prologues tend to do, he's in the Supreme Court um, in a case called uh, Me versus the United States, which is a great thing. His surname happens to be Me. Uh, we never quite know his first name, although his... his he also goes by Bon Bon. Bon Bon, which is a name his, his on-and-off girlfriend calls him. Uh, but he's basically been uh, charged with setting back the cause of black people. Uh, hence the title. And as far as he's concerned, the allegations boil down to conspiracy to upset the apple cart just when things were going so well. That's a very euphemistic <laughs> way to put it. He's yeah. essentially charged with reinstating segregation. We'll, we'll come on to that. But, uh, but the, when things were going so well, I think, is a reference to the fact that this was re- re- uh, published in America in 2015. So Obama, <laughs> Obama's the president. I think that's quite an important sort of backgr- background to this book. Uh, so things are going so well. And your honour, I plead human, he says. Then they flash back to the main story. And he was growing up, he grew up on a farm in inner city LA. So there were farms in inner city LA, more or less South Central. But a little city to itself called Dickens, where he was uh, homeschooled by his father, who had very fixed ideas of what being black means, which on the whole means you suffer from constant racism. <laughs> and, and just to make sure that he gets it, he, he does this sort of aversion therapy, where, it, where he'll, he'll it, like when, he's, when me or Bon Bon is, is very small, he'll put a sort of picture of Nixon and some pictures of police cars and some bottles of Paps Blue Ribbon. We'll talk about the obscureness of references to British, but I think Paps Blue Ribbon, for want of a better word, is kind of a redneck sort of beer, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, <laughs> so he puts these things around his cot and then starts firing the gun at the ceiling, <laughs> saying N-word, go back to Africa, except not N-word. We, we may have to discuss whether... Yeah, I want to have a conversation yeah, well, about well, this. Let's come on to that. No, so. but I, I want to do it on the mic, because I think this yeah, is yeah. actually very core yeah, no, to the no, book. No, it is. Uh, but except his dad doesn't say N-word yet. So, um, so, but then there's another very f- uh, f- funny section, I think, which is very dark again. This might give you some indication of whether you'd enjoy the book or not. But at one point he says to his dad that he's never experienced out-and-out racism. So his dad drives him for three days, uh, non-stop, to a Mississippi town that, quote, was nothing more than a dusty intersection of searing heat, crows, cotton fields, and judging from the excited look of anticipation on my father's face, unadulterated racism. But then, <laughs> so then he gets, he gets, his father says to him, like, see that woman coming out, that white woman coming out of the supermarket, go and wolf whistle at her, will you? Obviously recalling some of the great horrible cases in, of lynchings and things in the South. But anyway, so he goes up to this, but realises he can't wolf whistle, he just does this kind of vague... <laughs> of Ravel's Bolero. <laughs> so his dad says, look, out the way. I'll show you how to wolf whistle. Wolf whistles to the woman and the woman immediately sort of says, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and it goes off with, their fa- with the father. Uh, his dad is then sh- shot by the police. Also, Dickens itself disappears and, uh, and the, the whole town is just suddenly not there, which particularly affects a guy called Hominy Jenkins, who's the most famous local person whose fans used to come looking for him in, in Dickens. And Hominy Jenkins was a, a fictional... Um, and minor, normally on the cutting room floor, actor in, but in, in what was a real life series of shorts called Little, Little Rascals, which is about little kids, black and white, growing up together, where the black kids are all, you know, I think racistly portrayed. Which Hominy rather liked being. Me is aware that he's not a national living treasure, but a living national embarrassment, a mark of shame on the African American legacy stricken from the racial record. 
Anyway, Hominy liked this subservient role, or he might just be mad. He volunteers, or in fact insists on becoming Mii's slave. Yeah. And insists on being whipped. And he calls him Mazo and so on. Uh, Mii doesn't really like doing this, so he outsources <laughs> <laughs> the whipping to a dominatrix, who charges 200 bucks an hour plus racial incidentals. So, so you get sort of, I think the first three epithets are free. <laughs> and then after that, you uh, pay three bucks for every racial insult, except for the N-word, which is, which is the big 10 bucks. Meanwhile, he also brings Dickens back. He decides he's going to bring Dickens back. So he paints a line marking its border, also puts up signs on the freeway, uh, saying things like, watch out for falling home prices, black on black crime ahead. <laughs> and he try, he also, once he's done that, he tries to find a sister city, uh, but unfortunately he's turned down by Kinshasa, Juarez and Chernobyl, <laughs> not, none of whom uh, want to be associated with Dickens. Uh, so anyway, then for, how, many, how many asks for his birthday? He says, just get me some racism. Um, and so his, his, the way he gets him some racism, he puts a sign up on the, on the bus, uh, driven by his on and off girlfriend, Marpessa, um, saying there's some seat, seating reserved for, for white people. So Hominy's dying to give up his seat or being ordered to give up his seat to a white person. Unfortunately, there aren't really any white people on the bus, so they have to hire a sort of semi-prostitute actress who, who insists on taking his uh, seat. And um, But then uh, in another, you can see how this book is, is I mean, it, it does whack out in all possible directions. It absolutely equal opportunities <laughs> offender there's the, the book of um, remember a bit in the Simpsons where Homer explains to Bart the way to get out of jury sh- services to, is to be biased against all races <laughs> well, <laughs> and uh, so this is what this sort of book is so anyway what, what, what he finds out is that having segregation cuts crime on the bus that the black people start behaving much better Montpessa reports treating each other with new respect partly because of the Maybe because of the discrimination they're jointly facing. Yeah, but the thing is, Dickens Dickens is basically almost completely Latino. By well, this there's, there's, point. there's that problem too. I mean, that's why. Well, that's the thing is, he sets off next to resegregate the local school, which is significantly um, named Chaff School, presumably the wheat and the chaff. Again, the problem is it's segregated already, and they're not quite sure what. Yeah, they're, no, because uh, there's Latinos. So, so he builds this building site, and uh, with sort of a fence around it. And has pictures of what's going to be built, which is a new all-white school called Wheaton Academy. So it's got white kids with state-of-the-art labs and everything. <laughs> and uh, again, this causes the black kids in Chaff to start behaving better, uh, as if proving themselves against white, against the whites. And house prices go up. Um, and the whites now want to come to Chaff. So you got this kind of again rather savage reversal of all the scenes in the South in the late 50s and 60s of white kids insisting on being allowed into Chaff Academy, and black people the headmistress and so on, at the door saying, not allowing them in. And it's one of the demonstrations for this, um, that the cops discover that he's got a slave, and his slave's got whip marks, and that he's arrested. <laughs> and that's why he's in the Supreme Court at the beginning. There we are. Oh, I'll I'm leave tired. It there. <laughs> so, um, I mean, really that's all hilarious, isn't it? Uh, well, do you know what? I laughed a lot less than I expected to. <laughs> I mean, I've been laughing all the way through your summary, but I... I'm not sure. I think that the hardest cackle I gave, and this sounds like an indictment, but um, was on page 30. And it's one of his father's social experiments. I think it is worth reading out loud because it's, it's a great laugh. Um, so his, his dad is replicating the Kitty Genovese case, which, you know, if you've done sort of high school or A-level psychology, you get taught this as a basic standard. Kitty Genovese was a woman um, who in 1964 was um, raped and stabbed to death 
in New York. As this was happening to her, she kept screaming for help. This initiated what was then called the bystander effect, i.e. the more people there are around to help, the less people will actually help. They'll just assume that someone else is going to help instead of them. And I think also that same case found that if she'd yelled fire instead, someone would have immediately helped. Um, so uh, Bon Bon's father wants to sort of replicate this uh, in a sort of race adjacent way um, because he thinks that uh, the bystander effect actually doesn't apply to black people. They're a loving race whose survival has been dependent on uplifting each other and helping each other. So he takes his son uh, to a busy intersection. I, I, I know what's coming there. It's, it, is, it is. I think it is funny, but it, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't, it, it, uh. we're going to hell for laughing. Uh, he takes his son to a busy intersection, and he starts mugging and beating him. And um, I'm just going to read now because I, I, I can't do it justice. He beat me down in front of a throng of bystanders who didn't stand by for long. The mugging wasn't two punches to the face old when the people came, not to my aid, but to my father's. Assisting him in my ass kicking, they happily joined in with flying elbows and television wrestling throws. <laughs> I've never not been able to get through a reading before. One woman put me in a well-executed, and in retrospect, I mean, I'm going to start. I'm enjoying again. you laughing, but I'll take every one. Sorry, one woman put me in a well-executed and in retrospect merciful rear naked chokehold when I. When I regain consciousness to see my father surveying her and the rest of my attackers, their faces still sweaty and chests still heaving from the efforts of their altruism. <laughs> I imagine that, like mine, their ears were still ringing with my high-pitched screams and their frenzied laughter. On the way home, Pops put a consoling arm around my aching shoulders <laughs> and delivered an apologetic lecture about his failure to take into account the bandwagon effect. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I... I... I, I think the book is full of... Lo I mean, is it, I suppose one question is, <laughs> is it just a series of riffs? Um, and, and, and a, well, A, is it just a series of riffs? And B, if it is, does that matter? I can maybe see why you would say that because the sentence, it's something that's really commonly said about this book is that the sentences are so layered. They kind of pile on. They're extremely rhythmic. This is maybe part of Beatty's training as a, as a poet. And also, I think... Uh, Two of his previous novels, quite interestingly enough, revolve around a musician as a protagonist. I think Slumberland focuses around a DJ. Yeah, in Berlin. And, yeah, and tough around a black guy going for office who gets mistaken for a hip-hop artist. And so there is this... Um, There's definitely a podcast to be done, by the way, on authors who'd much rather have been rock stars. Yeah, we'll come on to that. We'll come on to that. But uh, I, I think... Uh, Beatty's sentences build, there are layers to them, that they're, they're extremely well constructed. So I guess that's the closest I could think of when it comes to the idea of riffs. But honestly, to me, and I'm not the only one to have said this, the longer I read this book, the bleaker I found it, the more nihilistic it became to me. And the laughter on my end sort of died out because I kept finding myself going, you know, you're right. He does hit out in all directions. Well, one of the things he's he's definitely got in his in his sights. I mean, yeah. uh, along with everything else in the entire world, is black intellectuals. Yes. So he hits out at this character of Foy Cheshire, who insists on rewriting the entire canon of um, American literature um, so that it's sort of black appropriate. At some point, Foy renames uh, Huckleberry Finn 
The prerogative free adventures and intellectual and spiritual journeys of African-American Jim and his young protege, white brother Huckleberry Finn, <laughs> as they go in search of the lost black family unit. And then at another point, uh, he rewrites uh, The Great Gatsby, and I think he rewrites it as The Great uh, Blacksby. Hold the Great on Blacksby, it. and he does I'm... a sort of parody of the first sentence. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Which Foy Cheshire rewrites as real talk. When I was young, dumb and full of cum, my omnipresent, good to my mother, non-stereotypical African-American daddy dropped some knowledge on me that I've been tripping off ever since. <laughs> yeah. And and do you know what? After that, Bon Bon burns the book, which I, I don't agree with book burning, but I would too. <laughs> he yeah. does. Yeah, so some of those, some of those titles are great as well. The, uh, the, of his rewrites, there's measured expectations. Yes, and also uh, middle March, middle of April. <laughs> I'll have, I'll have your money. I swear. <laughs> he he does hit out in every every single direction possible, and Beatty addresses this himself. Maybe we'll get onto this later. In interviews, he's always said, you know, if he has a mantra, it would be, I don't know. Yeah. Um, someone asks him, how do you measure r- racial progress? And he says, I've no idea. And in a way, that's what the book's about. But uh, speaking to you in, in the build-up, you, you saw this, here comes a cunning set of words, not so much as a sellout as a cop-out. Um, do, yeah, do, no, do, I do slightly regret so? that now. <laughs> oh, do you? He does talk about, in a way, that in a way he wrote this book to make himself flinch. Yeah. Um, and and I, he flinches often. He flinches often. And, and I, when I, was, I was reading, first I was thinking, he's, he's really playing a game of how far can you go here with the reader, isn't he? How, how much of this can you take? And... Um, but actually, it's also how much of it can he take? Yeah. Because he has goes at sort of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Yeah, you know, my if, God. if Martin Luther King had only tasted how horrible the iced tea was in southern <laughs> <laughs> cafes, he wouldn't have bothered trying to yeah. get to the seat there. And he, he talks a lot about Martin Luther King's lack of sense of humour, I think. Yeah, he does. But, I think, But he's obviously a civil rights yeah, you know, no, fan, but he's just, he's just he testing is. out his... I think the, the thing that I find really difficult, so one of the most famous um, sections in this book comes towards the end. It's at a comedy club that's in... Um, Dickens yeah um and and there's a black comedian on stage and he's making a joke and then I think some white people laugh at it and he turns around and he says this shit isn't for you which I guess is like interesting because I I I know quite a a few people who would probably espouse that sentiment who might read the sellout and and feel similarly you know that the book needs to be safeguarded against a, a certain kind of readership but then Beatty does one better, and he has Bon Bon think. Well, then who is it for? No, that, I think that's that's absolutely that's it. Yeah. But my problem with this book, because that's a really admirable question. Like it's it's a really worthwhile question. I don't think many works of literature have actually credibly asked this. It's not so much that um, Beatty doesn't give an answer. It's that he eviscerates all and any chance of ever finding an answer to that question. That, that, that comedy club scene, I mean, lots has happened by them, but that is sort of the, the those those people are sent out and the comedian says, you know, get get the F out. This is our thing. Yeah. And me uh, says, I wish I'd stood up to the man and asked him a question. So what exactly is our thing? Yes. And and the, what exactly is our thing is the question that the book absolutely poses and and can't answer. Yeah, I think there are. And two... I think I think authentically can't answer really. Yeah, I think there are there are two. Well, actually, do you know what? I think there are two strands to that. I think there's one strand that does get answered and one that doesn't. So the one that doesn't, um, the what is our thing, is the uh, I guess uh, this feels so icky phrasing it like this, but is the race question, you know. What is our thing? What is blackness? This is a book that actually eviscerates a lot of the 
um, tenets of identity that particularly African-Americans have used to sustain themselves, whether it is a kind of um, self-immolating intellectualism or whether it's, you know, leaning hardcore into um, the kind of stereotypes of black America and the way that Homley Jones does with his minstrelism or whether it's the kind of ambivalence that Bonbon feels, you know, he just wants to grow weed and artisanal watermelon and keep his head down and eventually finds that he can't. And reintroduce segregation. And reintroduce segregation. <laughs> but, but yeah, but, but no, you, mean, you know, yeah. or, or whether it's his father oh, yeah. who who has these sort of high, high minded aspirations towards a, a higher black self. These are all, you know, in my very humble opinion, I, the only claim I have to this is that I used to live in Florida for three years. Um, but even as... Uh, well, do, you to, do you want to say a bit about that? I'm quite firm about saying that I'm mixed race. I'm mixed black British. My mum's Polish. My dad's Ugandan. I was born in London. Um, but I think that's a really different kettle of fish. I didn't realise how different it was until I got to America. In England, I'd been going to this uh, like school in a tiny village that was all white. There were maybe like two other kids one was like Bengali and the other one was black and everyone thought we were related and everyone was like you're black you're black and I got I got to America and all the black kids at my school in Florida kept going well you're not black you're white <laughs> which is just like a complete reversal and I think that's how something old, how old were you Joe by the way oh this was I was between 13 and 17 so it was wow, actually tough, really tough formative yeah, yeah. yeah no I had a great time I loved going to high school in Florida in a way it was so much more egalitarian than than going to school in England. Um, but I think that that is a question that uh, shouldn't be answered, that BAT is is right to leave unanswered. I think in uh, another interview, something he points out that the question a lot of people ask him is, you know, what does racial progress look like? You know, how how can we get better? And he keeps saying, I don't know, but it's not a cop out because uh, as he rightly says, uh, a kind of racial utopia looks really different to everyone, that there is no one answer to that. And to hem yourself in, in accordance with one answer, is actually to create more barriers to your identity. The The second um, kind of line of that question is actually a lot more intimate and one that I, I find... Now, this is me being a cop-out, but I find a lot more interesting to think about than the sort of idea of this book as a, a satire on race relations in America. But it's this idea of self-actualization and personal identity when you are in uh, any kind of place that insists on moulding you into a socially acceptable version of yourself, of yourself based on what you look like. So Bonbon's yeah. father, who is a, a sociologist of sorts, uh, is also uh, a figure who um, uh, basically when he's needed, he'll help talk people in Dickens down from suicide or manic episodes. And the way he does this is by asking uh, them a question. And that question is, who am I and how can I be that person? And I think actually in a way, Beatty, um, or Beatty, sorry, does does answer that question throughout the book. And it is through an utter sense of ambivalence to everything that's happening around you. In fact, the happiest bonbon ever was, was when he was selling artisanal watermelon and beautiful satsumas to the good citizens of Dickens. And, you know, on occasion, great weed. That's when he felt peace and also when he delivered peace to other people. You know, regularly through the town, a kind of stench goes through and the only thing that kills it is the smell of his satsuma tree. I find that really beautiful. 
Yeah, but Link, I think the very last line of that, that question of who, who am I and how can I be it, the very last line of the book is um, Obama, I remember the day after the black dude was inaugurated, <laughs> Foy Cheshire Proud as Punch driving around the town in his coupe, honking his horn and waving an American flag. He said he felt like the country, the United States, had finally paid off its debts. Uh, and I, what about the Native Americans, I said? What about the Chinese, the Japanese, the Mexicans, the poor, the forests? When do they collect, I asked him. He just shook his head at me, said something to the effect that my father would be ashamed of me and that I'd never understand. And he's right, I never will. Is the very final sentence mm. of the book, I will never understand. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And I, 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 that, that seems... Beatty's, Beatty's take on, on this is sort of, from what I understand, but I, I'm paraphrasing a quote of his here, but he says, you know, it was shit yesterday, it'll be sh it's shit today, and it'll be shit tomorrow. And whilst these questions over how to build a community, how to establish a cogent sense of identity, um, how to um, persist in the face of suffering, while these are all questions worth asking, you cannot kill yourself in your life trying to answer them. And I think probably we should not duck the N-word question, should we? Yeah, no, we should. Uh, let's finish with that. Obviously, as good liberals, we're not going to use it on this show, which I, which I suspect would... Um, Possibly amuse Beatty, possibly uh, make him slightly want to question our pious, our pious liberal squeamishness, but we're still not going to do it. Uh, but it, but he has to, it. I mean, he does, as I say, when he outsources uh, the whipping of his slave to the dominatrix. Yeah. The N word is is ten bucks extra. <laughs> <laughs> so he knows it has a certain power. He uh, does. He is, he, he is funny with it, but but he does he does he, he's very he's very against the euphemism of it, isn't it? At one point he. I think it's pretty much him talking. Certainly, he seems to reflect what's in the book that you know the use of the N word or trying to get rid of the N word from um, Huckleberry Finn and so on. Yeah, uh, like why Mark blame Mark Twain because you don't have the patience and courage to explain to your children that the quote N word exists, and that during the course of their sheltered little lives, they one day may one day be called a actual N word or even worse, deign to call someone else an actual N word. No one will ever refer to them as little black euphemisms. <laughs> so welcome to the American lexicon, N-word. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I think, I think there's a serious point to this because he says the difference between most oppressed people of the world and American blacks, they vow never to forget and we want everything expunged from our record, sealed and filed away for eternity. We want someone like Foy Cheshire to present our case to the world with a set of instructions that the jury will disregard centuries of ridicule and stereotype. Um... And then I can't read on without more swearing. Can yeah. We go on? But yeah, yeah. It's interesting because for all the, uh, while Bertie was um, doing his sort of press tour post Booker Win around London, all the readings that I heard, I noticed that he admitted it. I don't know whether he did that for sort of British sensibility. And it, sure I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's so much more common to hear. And I was shocked when I lived in America how common it is to hear the N word and how like flippantly it's put out it, it does sort of raise an interesting question about how um this book is received by a black british audience versus an um, african-american audience this idea of what's called the black atlantic that these groups have a kind of cultural exchange but actually uh reniedo lodge who uh rather famously wrote um why i'm no longer talking to white people about race a few years ago was the person to review this for The Guardian. Actually kind of an obvious choice for the time. She found herself slightly unconvinced by the novel. Um, towards the end of the review, I think she says that uh, fundamentally its nihilism leaves it a little bit lost. 
And I think that um, part of, at least part of my, uh, I, I wouldn't want to say the N-word on this podcast either, partly because I know who our audience is, but also because I don't use it in my personal life. That's to do with a kind of cultural schooling. There is a massive difference between being black in America and black in the UK, I think. I, mean, I, I obviously want to ask you about that, but that's that's another three hours of podcasting. Yeah. So maybe we should call um, uh, call a, a, a halt to the sellout now with our traditional question of um, who would you recommend it to? I want to know your answer first. Sort of anyone who doesn't mind a bit of a wrestle. I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't, it's not. I mean, he says actually in that book of speech that we heard, you know, it's, it, it's, it's quite a hard book and it's quite a hard read. And it sort of is. We've said it barrels along, but it barrels along in quite a complicated and, as I say, full of slightly obscure references, loads and loads and loads of, I think, cracking jokes. Um, I would, I'd recommend it to anybody, sort of, some of my, any of my more sort of bookish friends. I think you'd have to sort of know your way around them. A modern novel, probably. (laughs) But but once, but once, but once you, once you did that. Which I'm hoping is most of our listeners. And I don't, in that case, I would recommend it to most of our listeners. I mean, you, know, you may find yourself outraged, but if you are, then you are responding to the book exactly as I think you meant to. It's it's really interesting. I think if you if you are a person who wakes up and doom scrolls or goes to bed and doom scrolls, it's a really interesting kind of monolith in a way of a book to read through. It, it kind of, it's like a blast from the past. It hits you in the face, and for that. I would say that it's it's not exactly like a like a popular novel or a beach read, but it's it's tremendously accessible just from the point of view of what it does to your sense of memory. Um, so yeah, I would say I'd, I'd recommend this to either people who love Voltaire or DBC Pierre. <laughs> okay, and I'd recommend it to all our listeners. And that's it for this week. If you haven't already followed the show, please do. And remember to leave a rating, hopefully five stars. Yeah, go on. <laughs> you know you want to. Uh, you can also find us at thebookerprizes.com and on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Substack. All at, at thebookerprizes, all one word. And we'd love to hear what you think about the episode and the sellout, so get in touch. And until next time, goodbye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Benjamin Sutton, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes. <laughs>